Hi, this is Nikki Belmonte, Executive Director of the ABA. I just want to take a moment to thank you for supporting the ABA's nesting season appeal. The funds raised through this campaign help support our young birder programs and provide resources to build even better experiences. You have inspired our youth to discover the joy of birding. Thank you, and please enjoy this episode of our podcast. Hello, and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm Nate Swick. It is at long last duck stamp season. The Migratory Bird Hunting and Conservation Stamp, which we all know is the duck stamp, is out now as of June 24. Birders have had a somewhat mixed history with the stamp. I know there has been in the past a movement to move non-consumptive conservationists over to a different stamp, one that isn't associated with waterfowl hunting, which some birders understandably take issue with. I, I certainly sympathize. I've gone back and forth on it over the years. I do wish that there was a conservation stamp, so-called birder stamp, that is explicitly for non-hunters, not just birders, but also you know, maybe fishermen, photographers, wildlife watchers more generally. Uh, maybe even something that feeds directly into the same pot of money, which is certainly significant. Because the, the duck stamp really is, and, and there's no two ways about it, unparalleled in terms of being a hyper-efficient means of getting money to the people who will use it to do good things for wildlife and birds. There's practically no overhead. Famously, something like 98% of the purchase price goes to land acquisition via the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. I feel like we're obligated to say that when we talk about the duck stamp. The track record is real, and it is, it's breathtaking. We don't have it yet. Might as well go with the the current duck stamp. And the new stamp is very nice. It features redheads, everyone's favorite duck. Uh, they're very nice. There's a there's a boat in the background. Uh, you might remember that this is the one and only year that was subject to the boneheaded rule change that required a quote unquote hunting element before that was rescinded to the relief of literally everyone who engages in duck stamps, even many hunters. I appreciate that the judges chose the stamp where that element is is really barely noticeable, uh, particularly on a stamp that is little more than an inch wide. Anyway, I, I say all this because you can buy a duck stamp through the ABA store. Uh, we make zero money off of it. It is a service to birders. If you want your duck stamp purchase to be counted as a birder and not as a hunter or stamp collector or whatever, you can buy via the ABA. The link will be in the show notes. On to the show this week. I welcome back birding editor Ted Floyd. We remember some birds, you know, just, just randomly like we do. It's a good time. All that after this week's Red Birds. <laughs> This is your rare bird focus for the first part of July 2022. A more pedestrian week of birding this week, one that involves neither Limpkins nor the state of Michigan. Oddly, fortunately, I don't know, enough. Up to the outpost of St. Paul Island, Alaska, where we're seeing a bit of a midsummer surge in rare Asian vagrants, both a Temminx stint and a gray wagtail are notable even up there where most of the ABA area records are from. Onto the East Coast, a white winged tern was an exciting find near Milford, Delaware. This handsome Euro version of our black tern is very rare on the Atlantic coast, even more rare elsewhere on the continent. 
Most records come from summer, so this is a great time for birders to be on the lookout for this one. And one first record for the week from Wyoming, where a neotropic cormorant was photographed in Goshen County in mid-June. Uh, birders might remember way back like, two or three summers ago when neotropic cormorant was exploding across the continent in a manner not unlike the last two summers of Limpkins. Uh, that hasn't really let up. They've just become more regular. Wyoming was a bit of a holdout as the species had been recorded in all of its surrounding states, even becoming somewhat regular in neighboring Utah and Colorado. This leaves only Washington and Oregon as states west of the Mississippi without records of this species. Those are the rarities for the week, but for the full accounting, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash RBA. You can also follow along with all the Rare Bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook. Once again, as I am want to do, we go back to the well of my colleague Ted Floyd here on the American Birding Podcast uh, for our "Let's Remember Some Birds" segment. For copyright reasons, we'll call uh, we'll call random birds. Um, Ted is the editor of Birding Magazine. He is uh, perhaps the longest uh, tenured staff member here at the at the American Birding Association. Man, he's forgotten more about birds than I think. Uh, <laughs> most of us know. Um, Ted, welcome. Great to talk to you again. Thanks for having me, Nate. Good to see you. For people who may not be familiar with this segment and what we do here, um, Ted is from Colorado. I live in North Carolina. What I did was I, I grabbed the state lists of those two states, uh, North Carolina pushing 500, Colorado just over 500, if I recall correctly. And uh, I found all the common birds on those two lists. It comes to around 390 or so. And uh, I pull out the random number generator and I just find some birds and then we'll kind of kind of talk about them. They can be how to find them. They can be uh, our experiences with them. They can be really anything. We just use the birds as a jumping off point to talk about birding, bird watching, bird biology, bird anything. And, you know, Ted's always good for that. So, Ted, I, I, before we get going into this it's early july i don't know if there's something noteworthy about birding in colorado in early july that that folks should know about here in the southeast it's just hot and and buggy and humid and kind of miserable frankly well i love the month of uh, july it is to me a very dynamic month of the year uh, an awful lot is is happening um i know it can be hot and muggy in the southeast it's sort of uh just warm and dry in Colorado, so oh, perhaps a bit more, lovely. bit more, yeah, a bit more bearable. <laughs> and we can always go up to you know mountains that are two miles above sea level as well if, if we want to encounter snow, for example. Oh, but um, quite yeah, so the, you know the the hummingbirds are starting to come back through now. We get several species of migrant hummingbirds that are sort of really in full force in the month of July. Uh, shorebirds, just as you're, you're experiencing in North Carolina, are starting to come back, and then we have this. Um, fairly pronounced uh, phenomenon of molt migration that is mm, uh, mm-hmm. it happens in the east but it's much more subtle and in uh, in the west uh, it involves these uh you know, long distance dispersals of entire populations of birds so a lot of baby birds a lot around a lot of insects to look at um so there are the sort of typical summertime distractions but uh july is a very dynamic month i, I really enjoy birding in july in colorado you know, I hear the term molt migration thrown around a lot as though uh, everyone sort of knows what it is. Ted, can you explain molt migration? Yeah, that's, and that, thanks for sort of calling me out on that one. And if I were, uh, <laughs> I know still, we have a lot of different <laughs> yeah. listeners at different skill levels, and not everyone may know what molt yeah, migration is. Yeah, so I'm going to address this um, sort of explicitly to folks who live in. Um, Eastern North America, mm-hmm. uh, which is probably more than half of our listening uh, yeah. audience. So, yeah. So, what happens in the West is that because uh, the breeding grounds 
pretty much dry up uh, around this time of the year. Uh, the birds don't have enough uh, food on the breeding grounds to molt. So molt is very energetically expensive. So they have to go somewhere else to molt. In North Carolina, let's say, despite the mugginess, there's so much food there for the birds. So they, they tend to complete their uh, annual molts on or very near the breeding grounds. There's some movement, but it's you know, typically like tens of miles, not many hundreds to sometimes a thousand or more miles. So um, in the Rocky Mountains, um, where I live and a bird that we have in uh, common, the, the two of us, uh, is, is chipping sparrow. Maybe that'll mm-hmm. be a random bird today. <laughs> but um, so so our chipping sparrows just, um, they, they've run out of food by now. The, the mountains are really dry and hot and bugless. So they have to migrate uh, hundreds of miles to very, very different habitats at this time of the year. Uh, and they they go to places that are wet and have bugs and just places to hide and they molt there. So, so they're flying by night right now in early July, uh, hundreds of miles to get to places to molt. Whereas your chipping sparrows in North Carolina have plenty of food. Yeah. So they're like, well, why don't we just hang out around the breeding grounds uh, molt now, and then they'll all sort of migrate you know, sort of normally, if you will, during the fall. So the molt migration, and I've cut a lot of corners here, so if a Peter Pyle or somebody's <laughs> listening, I'm a little nervous, but um, yeah, the, the molt migration basically refers to this phenomenon of adult birds bailing on the breeding grounds as soon as the breeding season is over because they've run out of food and then flying long distances to complete their molt. And some of our most um, celebrated birds do that. Maybe the chipping sparrow is sort of a, just a little brown bird, but uh, birds like Lashley bunting and uh, Bullock's oriole, you know, these spectacular birds are like migrating right now, which is really cool. And they're not doing their fall migration, but they're conducting this molt migration to Mm -hmm. um, places that are, um, that have enough food for them to molt. You know, what a phenomenon that we do have that is sort of like that uh, in the Southeast is the annual dispersal of wading birds Mm -hmm. uh, from their, from their rookeries, from their breeding colonies on the coast well inland. You know, I'm probably about 200 miles inland. Uh, in North Carolina. And this is the time of year when we start seeing things like young little blue herons and snowy egrets and even like really unusual kind of interesting things like potentially roseate spoonbill. Mm. Uh, last summer it was a big roseate spoonbill summer and uh, wood stork and things like that if we're really lucky. Um, but that's sort of what I think about when I think of late summer birding. The shorebirds are coming down. Yeah, but all the kind of back reservoir, muddy reservoir arms are, are have a lot of interesting uh, wading birds that are coming up from the coast and finding places here. I don't know. It's not molt migration, but it's something, it's just like a post Yeah, I've just always dispersal. used this sort of yeah. throwaway term of you know, post-breeding dispersal, right. which, you know, yeah. it's a, a description without really an explanation. <laughs> it's true. Um, yeah. uh, something I will point out, you, you mentioned being 200 miles from the coast. You know, I'm, depending on how you sort of measure up distances, you know, like 2,000 miles from the right. coast, not quite <laughs> right. that far, but more than 1,000. And we, we, we also are beneficiaries of that uh, northward post-breeding dispersal of wading mm-hmm. birds. So um, we get, I mean, many birders, you know, sort of will get their first of season great egret like mm-hmm. around now, for you know, sure. not yeah. not in April or May or something yeah. like that. So um, it's not just birds, you know, moving, you know, into the Piedmont and beyond in North Carolina. It's also birds, you know, moving way up into Colorado and Wyoming and the Dakotas and Montana and stuff like that. Yeah, I imagine it's for similar reasons as the mole migration. I mean, they're looking for food. There's a lot of food here. The lakes are kind of drying up. There's, you know, opportunities for stuff here, but sure. I, I have no idea. Yep, yep. Oh, no, b- b- birds move around. And birds move around, right. Yeah, and, 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 we could probably have this conversation for the rest of the afternoon here, but it also just, you know, birds moving to um, new sites for second breeding uh, yeah. attempts. So like a blue grosbeak and sedren or some of the birds in the Midwest yeah. that really move around an awful Yelbled lot. Cuckoo. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, just right. Yellow-billed cuckoo also in the mm-hmm. West will do that too. Uh, just sort of moving around because they had one nesting attempt. And it may not have been um, a failure. It's just that, you know, 
to do it again in the month of July, you want to go mm-hmm. somewhere else. Yeah. Well, shall we do the thing that we came here to do? Yep, let's do the uh, thing. Let's that hit we the came random here to do. random okay. number generator and talk about. Ra- a randomize me, Nate. I'm yeah. ready. All right. All so right. we're going to 245, all the way down to the end, towards the end. Um, well, this is a fun one that we both have experiences with. Um, tree swallow. Oh yeah. What do you have to say about tree swallows, Ted? Yeah. So what do I have to say about tree swallows? Well, they're they're everywhere. <laughs> they're everywhere. <laughs> uh, right, right, right now. Um, so uh, the adults are about, uh, the, the young are out and flying mm-hmm. uh, right now. The, the adult tree swallow, especially in the east, is, you know, unmistakable. Uh, in the west, we have to deal with uh, violet green swallows, which with a good look are also unmistakable. But we're dealing now with these uh, these young tree swallows, which um, can look like a lot of other swallows. They sure they're, can. Uh, yeah, yeah, they're, they're, they're sort a of common just, species on the what's this bird. They're brown uh, above and, yeah. and white below, but um, depending on sort of where the brown and the white is, they can uh, certainly um, look like, say, a northern rough-winged swallow or a, mm-hmm. another one that's really can be really quite similar is bank swallow. A lot bank of tree swallow. swallows, a lot yep. of immature tree swallows will have um, quite a bit of that sort of brown smudging across the breast. So it's a good time of year to uh, sort of get into a tricky swallow uh, identification. Yeah. So in spring, when the adults are coming back, you know, I probably like, I think probably a lot of us, you know, we don't even think twice about swallow identification, you know, barn tree, northern roughwing yep. bank. I mean, they're, they're so, if you will, easy in April yeah. and May. And now they're like really tricky. So they're, they're, they're a fun I totally challenge. I agree with you. I think that they are underrated as a as an identification challenge. Um, mm-hmm. Not always because of how difficult the plumages are, though there is a little bit of that. But also, like you don't always feel like you get a great look at them. Um, yeah. Or you don't, you get one good look at it and then you lose the bird and then you have a hard time finding it again to get that confirmatory look. Yeah, I actually was, I had almost that exact thought, almost like verbatim, just uh, verbatim, just uh, yesterday evening, I was killing some time waiting for, for somebody at a place where there were uh, four or five species of swallows flying mm-hmm. around. And I was thinking like, you know, I've just seen like 150 swallows. And I haven't seen one of them well because yeah, it, it, exactly it, it, right. it, it was a rainy day and it was overcast and the birds were you know, fairly uh, stressed out. I don't think they were finding a lot of food. I was just reflecting on how how actually hard it is to get a look <laughs> sometimes at, at a, you know, a swallow sort of in profile. Um, what I will say is that uh, with regard to the tree swallows in particular, um, boy, when you do get one in profile, um, and I'm thinking of an adult here now, mm-hmm. uh, not only is it a beautiful bird, um, they have a great song, you know. They do. For we, we think, yeah. I think uh, for a lot <laughs> well, maybe of swallow- for birds too. <laughs> yeah, but I think for a lot of swallows, you know, we're so used to hearing them on the wing when they just sort of right. get that, you know, those sort of monosyllabic, you know, twits and chirps and so forth. Um, but like the song of the tree swallow, it's it's like cage bird beautiful. It's it's really <laughs> it's warbling and rich and elaborate and um, yeah, a tree swallow sort of giving a full on song is a, a really beautiful song. Yeah, they're actually sort of scattered breeders where I live in the southeast. We're a little bit far south for them, although they can breed up in the upper elevations. Like they're not terribly uncommon in the mountains. Um, I have one on one of my breeding bird surveys in um, the western Piedmont, which is sort of unusual, but it's a a house um, that has boxes. They have their boxes out and the tree swallows are always at the boxes. Um, But in the winter here in in the southeast in particular, in North Carolina in particular, um, we get just massive, massive flocks of tree swallows, uh, hundreds of thousands of them along the coast massing on the um, and the, and the myrtles. They love to eat the wax yeah. myrtle berries. And um, I've had experiences where I've been driving on a road uh, in the North Carolina coastal plain, um, kind of by the, by the sound, along the sound. Yeah. And you can look out over it and like it's just a massive flock of thousands upon thousands of tree swallows that just follows you, not even follows you, like you're driving for 20 minutes. 
and it's just one long, never-ending flock of of hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of tree yeah. swallows. It's a really neat phenomenon. I, I, I that's something I, I really missed from my my East Coast days. I yeah, remember right. seeing some of those um, those uh, those huge um, aggregates, like at Tinicum. Oh, sorry, I'm dating myself here. John Heinz National Wildlife Refuge mm-hmm. in Philadelphia, and um, you, you said hundreds of thousands, maybe millions. And um, one thing I've just sort of been thinking about recently, having some conversations with folks about is how many birds are in those flocks. So um, I, yeah. I like to think of um, tree swallow flocks in the win- fall and winter back east as like a b- Borg cubes. They had this sort of cu- cubic <laughs> look to them. But if you just do the math real quickly, if they're only 100 birds wide, 100 birds deep, and 100 birds long, that's a million birds right there. Yeah. And Because 100 times 100 times 100 is a million. And that doesn't even seem like a lot. Like if you were to say, well, they're all, it's a cube with 100 swallows per side, that actually comes out to a million cube. Sorry, hundred per, per per edge. Um, that comes out to a million swallows. It's just such a incredible phenomenon. And um, you know, Gulf Coast in, in the winter. Um, I, I bet you know in the millions for some of those uh, Borg cubes of uh, of tree swallows. The other cool thing now that you mentioned East Coast swallows to me is that uh, that diet shift that the uh, mm-hmm. the tree swallows have in the. Um, the winter. I think we may have talked about this like in connection with Myrtle Warbler earlier. I but, think you know, so. They, yeah. Yeah. They have like they um totally different biosynthetic pathway in the winter months for digesting the uh, basically sort of like dissolving the wax off the um the berries so that mm-hmm. they both can eat the wax and they can digest the berry that way, which is just yeah. so cool to me. Yeah. It's 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 wild. You mentioned uh, the difficulty of of identifying some of the swallows. Um, I always think about that when I'm trying to find a violet green swallow in a flock mm-hmm. of uh of tree swallows because you know we do encounter those mm-hmm. million plus blocks right. of tree swallows like if i found if i got a glimpse of what looked like a violet green swallow would i be able to find it again i don't know that i would yeah we have that problem in colorado with um cave swallows you know infiltrating mm-hmm. these huge flocks of cliff swallows and yeah you get a great look at a bird for a couple of seconds and then all of a sudden it just dissolves into this flock of you know literally many hundreds to not you know a few thousand cliff swallows and then they all go into a culvert and come back out the other side or something it's just sort of hopeless so swallows are are tricky in that sense too and they 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 don't really sort of settle down the way like if you have like a you know hope springs eternal but like if you find like a a rare stint, you know, in North mm-hmm. Carolina at this time of the year, it'll probably like settle down for a while. But um, yeah, if you find a rare swallow, not not so much this time of year, a little bit later in the year in North Carolina, mm-hmm. you know, good luck even seeing it again, you know, let alone, you know, seeing it well. So, yeah. Yep. Yeah. All the rare swallows that you sort of uh, encounter are ones in very, very small flocks, like groups of a dozen or, yeah. um, you know, and then you can, you know, zero in on one for a little sure. bit. Those big flocks, good luck. Right. All right, let's hit the random number generator okay. again. 47. Ooh, in the beginning. The top. Ducks or something. Or uh, it's grouse. close. It's his eared grebe. Oh, the eared grebe. That's a bird that you encounter more than I do. In fact, yeah, I think I saw my Colorado eared grebe with you at an ABA board and staff retreat about 10 years ago. When we be. went to uh, the uh, the place in, where they had the mountain plovers. Oh, geez. Near Colorado Springs. I oh, uh, Chico Basin Ranch. That's the right. one, yeah, Chico I, Basin yeah, Ranch. That, that's that right. sounds right. Yeah, so the eared grebe is uh, just one of those birds you could talk about uh, Talk forever. about molt migration. Uh, there you go. They, they, they have an incredible molt migration, and theirs involves um, flightlessness. So mm-hmm. the, uh, the eared grebe is the... Uh, by far the most flightless bird in the ABA area, most flightless extant bird in the ABA yeah. area. Um, some adult-eared grebes are flightless for um, more than half the year, you know, seven or eight, up to nine months of the year. They have several periods of um, what they call this uh, hyperphagy, uh, you know, when they're eating just 
incredible amounts of food. Um, and then they um, not only are they so big that they can't really get off the water, but they also <laughs> lose uh, muscle mass extremely quickly. And they uh, just gorge themselves on um, like a very, very small uh, you know, animal matter, like at the Great Salt Lake or uh, yeah. Mono Lake or uh, Lahontan Basin and, uh, in, um, in uh, Nevada. And and they do it again, and then they go to the the, the ocean for winter. <laughs> they got, yeah. It's just an incredible um, sort of annual cycle for for the year degree with these uh, alternating bouts of you know extreme overeating. Well, it's not overeating; they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, but they're mm-hmm. eating so much food and losing so much muscle mass that they actually cannot get off the water. Uh, coupled with these spectacular long distance migrations, so um, it's you talk about Jekyll and Hyde. It's like Jekyll Hyde, Jekyll Hyde, and and Jekyll and Hyde again during the course of the year for the year degree. But yeah, it's, it's a primarily um, Western bird, although certainly, you know, annual to the uh, East Coast. Yeah. I was going to say, you know, um, Eared Grebe is, is interesting. We're talking about the North American population, but oh, Eared Grebe yes, is one of those right. birds that is is um, whole Arctic, you should say. So it's Even found... more than whole Arctic. I think yeah. it's, I mean, it's almost like global, doesn't it? I think, the, do I have Maybe. that right? Doesn't the, I think the Eared Grebe gets like well down into sub-equatorial Africa, doesn't it? Maybe I'm not uh, wrong about not that. would not surprise me, um, but yeah. I don't know for sure. But, you know, obviously in the old world, it's known as uh, black-necked grebe. Is it it's right. black-necked grebe or is it, I get those mixed. I'm pretty sure it's black-necked it's grebe black and horned is Slavonian. It's still Slavonian grebe, right? Yeah. yeah. So so do these um, old world populations of eared grebes, do you know if they undergo these sort of molt migrations too? I have no yeah. idea. Um, so I don't know. I, I know that yeah. all, all the work I've just cited, um, <laughs> I, should, I, I should cite my sources here. I mean, it really was sort of a pioneered by Joe Jell, um, who uh, did so much of this work in Mono Lake in the late 20th century. So it's definitely based on the North American populations. I don't know why populations of the old world wouldn't be similarly capable of such feats, but uh, Jell's work, um, I hope I'm getting this right here, was really based you know, on, on the, North Amer- the Western North American populations. Yeah, you've got me thinking. I've actually just pulled up Birds of the World. Okay. Curious if it says anything. Yeah, actually, there is a, wow. So there is a, a year-round population in Southern Africa. Yeah, like, that's what I thought. Yeah, right. yeah, okay. yeah. Um, why that is still considered its own species, I have no mm-hmm. idea, because I can't imagine there's any sort of gene flow between those birds in Southern Africa and the birds in, um, in yeah. Eurasia that looks like they winter primarily uh, around the Mediterranean right. um, and then in East Asia as well. That's a pretty fascinating distribution, actually. Just looking at it, I would encourage any listeners to go if you are who who are um, subscribed to Birds of the World, which is absolutely an amazing resource, um, to have a look at that. But it, I don't see anything. I don't see anything about old world populations doing these uh, big molt migrations. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm not aware of it. Um, as I said, yeah. the, the the really sort of uh, celebrated work done um, again by Jell and colleagues was. Uh, Especially like Mono Lake, I want to say in the yeah, late twentieth yeah, century. Lake, that's what it yeah. says. Yeah. Is Mono Mono Lake? Not Mono uh, yeah, Lake? yeah, I know, I know. It's um, I have no idea. When I moved into that region twenty five plus years ago, I learned that it's a uh, Mono Lake and that it's on the uh, Nevada border, not the oh, it's Nevada, Nevada, Nevada. Border. Nevada. Yeah, Good to know. Right. So, anyhow, there you go. <laughs> yeah, I, I once um, gave a talk um, to the Carolina Bird Club, which, um, as folks may or may not know, actually incorporates both North and South Carolina, so we share a big state states ornithological club. And uh, I mispronounced an island in uh, South Carolina and quickly corrected by uh, South Carolinians in um, 
in attendance. It's Kiowa Island, if any, in case anyone wonders. I still don't know how to pronounce B-E-A-U-F-O-R-T. Well, South it depends Care. on which Carolina you're in. <laughs> I know, I know. So, I, I, I really, like, I honestly do not know how to say that word. It's so. Beaufort. It's Beaufort in North Carolina and Beaufort. In okay, Carolina, all right, two different enough. counties. All right. <laughs> anyway, I don't know if we have anything more to add uh, on. Yeah, just one one thing about eared grebe. I'll just mention, sort of bring things back to bird identification. Sure. Um, in places where both eared and horned grebes occur. Um, you know, they, um, the breeding plumage and the full-on winter plumage, they're quite distinct. One problem is that, you know, when they're molting from their um, winter to the breeding plumage, they both look like just these complete messes. Yes, and, uh, so it like can be quite April, difficult, um, quite yeah. difficult identification. So yeah. a really cool distinction there, though, at least here in Colorado, and this is something that Tony Lukering put me on to, is a great difference in molt timing. So going back oh, really? to, yeah, going back to, um, to tree swallow, which is, you know, to swallows and molt migration in general here, but um, the horned grebe molts uh, much earlier in okay. the spring in Colorado. So if you see like a really spiffy looking grebe, let's do it the other way. If you see a really messy looking grebe yeah. in April, it's not going to be a horn. You can just say, well, it's huh. messy. Therefore it's an ear. I think it's kind of cool that, yeah. um, that timing is so, um, consistent. So huh. uh, I'm trying to think just, about how that manifests in the East. Um, because we usually get migrating grebes in, I guess a little bit earlier. So it'd be like late March. Yeah, and, you also uh, get a lot more horns than. Oh yeah, so, by yeah, far, a, but, uh, but, orders of magnitude. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, but, but but certainly there are cases in Colorado and you know elsewhere in the in the Rocky Mountains region where you know the number of horns and eards is about equal. Hmm. And really, if it, if it's a messy looking bird, it's going to be an eared, and if it's a really spiffy looking bird, it's going to be a horned. So, all right, random number generator. What you got? Three seventeen. Oh, toward the end. Yeah. Oh. Sparrow. Uh, a green-tailed towhee. Oh, so, actually, so. it's a bird that I've never seen in North Carolina. Actually, actually, I don't think I've ever seen it, period. That would be a live bird for me, funnily So enough. the green-tailed towhee is, in fact, a sparrow. Yeah, <laughs> um, it is. Yeah, so that's yeah. The, the first thing we should say. Um, it's an incredible... It may be the most colorful sparrow in the ABA It's area. a nice-looking bird. Mean, so I've seen it. I've never seen it, actually. Yeah, it's yellow and red and gray and black and white and green. It's It's got it all. It's a really yeah. stunningly colored uh, colored towhee. Um Despite having the name Toey, it is, as I said, a sparrow. And one neat thing about the Toeys is we've learned that there's sort of like no such thing as a Toehee, the, the birds that we used to call. <laughs> That's like true. The, yeah, the green-tailed yeah. and canyon and Californian. So Toeys mm. are all like, um, they've been split apart. And actually, the rufous-crowned sparrow has been put in between them. So I, I may have this wrong, but if I recall correctly, the rufous-crowned sparrow is basically just like a canyon towhee um it's in the same clade as the canyon oh, really? towhee i would have see i would have i would have pegged it as a uh, closer to the green-tailed towhee because it does so i look might like have this wrong towhee. here but I, I i believe it's and you could look up scientific names for me here but i, I think it's <laughs> green-tailed spotted and eastern form a clade i think and then like canyon california and um rufus crown sparrow form and a bears, a bears towhee, and a bears towhee. Oh yeah, piplio, 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 right, right, yeah, not yeah. Piplio, okay, piplio. yeah. So, so yeah, basically, the green tail towhee is a piplio. Yeah. yeah. So the eastern towhee forms a group with spotted and um, yes. an eastern. Yep. Yes. And then, piplio, and then yeah. rufous crown sparrow is actually a kind of towhee, but it's one of the so-called brown towhees, like the canyon or the um, or the California towhee. So. There's also a collared towhee. Yes, Mexico. right, and they hybridize extensively Do with they? other. Uh, yeah, so that's that's a real kind of a fascinating or messy situation yeah. about south of the uh the aba area for us so yeah the green tail towhee is a um just this 
lovely towhee. It, uh, sorry, lo- lovely sparrow, incredibly colorful. It's a bird that in the West I associate a lot with the um, the slate-colored fox sparrow. They often hmm. occur in sort of similar habitats and actually have sort of similar vocalizations. And a uh, neat thing about the uh, the green-tailed towhee is that uh, unlike, say, the spotted or the eastern towhee, which will sing the same song over and over and over again and then switch to another one, uh, the each song in the green-tailed towhee's output is different. So it'll give like song type A and then B and then C and then throw A back in there or something mm-hmm. like that. So you can sort of get to know the different birds by the way they jumble up their songs. But wow, it's- oh, that's interesting. I, I have uh, I have nothing to add because not only have I not seen Green Hill Toey, but just like randomly, it's you know how that is. I've only birded out west a handful of times, and it seems like every time I I guess I've missed Green Hill Toey because it's not a bird that I would have been like I have to see Green Hill Toey. Well, now yeah. I will be, but it's but it's a bird that's possible at all these places I've been. Obviously, I've birded Arizona and California and Colorado and. Or when Wyoming, and I just never encountered. Just you never know, and you mentioned Wyoming, and I need to actually um, qualify something I said a moment ago. Oh, I, I, right. I mentioned I mentioned uh, seeing them in connection with um, fox sparrows, which is mm-hmm. true. They they do occur in the sort of shrubby places where fox sparrows do. But um, and I just this slipped my mind when I said it. The vast bulk of the Western population is actually, and this is why why a lot of people haven't seen it. It's an habitat that a lot of people don't go to, which is these uh, mm. vast sagebrush flats. That makes so, me feel better. Yeah, yeah high elevation <laughs> sagebrush. When you said Wyoming, I was like, oh yeah, I got to mention that. So yeah, a lot of the uh, green-tailed towhees in the West are going to be out there with like um, brewer sparrows, uh, even like sage oh, grouse. I brewer sparrow and <laughs> I didn't see sage grouse though. <laughs> sage grouse, but um, <laughs> like uh, what else would it be out there? Like, well, sage thrasher. So yeah, um, yeah, yeah it's one of the... The, uh, the sagebrush, um, I shouldn't say specialists because they do get to brush your habitat. Um, the, uh, the kids who will be at Camp Colorado in a few uh, weeks are going, I assume, to see green-tailed towhees when they go, for example, to uh, Rocky Mountain National Park okay. near Estes Park. But yeah, if you just want to sort of be swamped with green-tailed towhees, go into these, um, yeah, then go to, um, <laughs> go to Wyoming and find high elevation sagebrush yeah, and uh, you will find green-tailed towhees. Well, this is, uh, you know, way back, it's pre-eBird too, so mm-hmm. I wasn't really keeping track of things like I do now. And, um, you know, my family made the drive from Denver, from the airport at Denver, uh, up to Yellowstone National Park. And oh, yeah. we did stop at a couple rest areas in the middle of Wyoming. And I do, we got some stuff. We got Ferruginous Hawk and mm-hmm. we saw the Sage Thrashers and Brewer's Sparrow. But I, it's, you know, these were brief five, 10 minute stops. And so I just did not encounter Greetail Telly. Maybe I should have been yeah. looking harder for it. Well, but. if you can conjure memories of a bird singing this wild <laughs> sort of heard it, w- whistled, buzzy sort of vocal. Oh, the other one I should mention in connection with these sagebrush habitats is um, gray flycatcher. It's a really oh, weird complex. Okay. So gray, fly, gray flycatcher, green-tailed towhee, greater sage grouse, brewer, sparrow, and sage thrasher. Like, what are those five have in common? Well, they're all really um, partial to sagebrush. So, hmm. well, go figure. figure. Something, to, something to keep in mind next time I'm out that way. Yep. All right. And, you know, and also it's a bird that is technically on, is on the North Carolina list, but I can't, I, there are not more than three records. If sure. I recall correctly. Yeah. It's very, yeah it's, very it, I mean, it is annual to the coast, you know, somewhere, yeah. you know, along the you know, U.S. and Canadian coast every, every year, but it's, it's a good one when it shows up. That's for yeah, sure. For sure. For sure. I think the last one was at a, someone's feeder down in Wilmington. Yep. That sounds right. Uh, all right, so let's hit the random number generator. What yep. do we got here? One, three, five, one thirty-five. Shorebird or somewhere there. Uh, you are correct. It is. Uh, well, okay. So I have this bird on here incorrectly. Uh, I have it on my list as mugle. Oh yeah. As we know, all right. it yes. is officially short-billed gull. Yeah. Yep. 
Yeah, that boy, at least for now. There's for some, now. Uh, there's some yeah. rumbling about it. It's going back to Mugle. It's funny, I, I, you know, I've talked about this back channel a lot. I'm generally a fan of good descriptive names like short build mm-hmm. goal, but there's something about short build goal that I just, I can't get the hang of it. It feels I, I very know. weird coming it off just, out it, of your yeah, mouth. And, and then yeah. I always have to like, um, usually these names just come very naturally. I always have to like, remember like common goal, mu goal, <laughs> short build goal, Kamchatka <laughs> goal. Like, like I, I have to like remember yeah. which time I'm even talk. So uh, what, 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 what's the bird again now? It's common it's, goal. I think it's, no, well, so no, as of now, as of the time no, we were no, no, recording no, I didn't this. Mean, what did you dial up? What's the Oh, mu goal. I dialed oh, up oh, mu goal oh, okay. because I made okay. this list back when it was still called right. mu goal. <laughs> so I have a question for you. So mu goals yeah. in North Carolina could be, or more, they could be either species, right? Well, we have both. Yeah, we have had both. So when they split them, um, what, last year? You got, uh, you yeah, got we added a species to the North Carolina list. Yeah, it's, right. and we have about the same number of both. It's about a dozen, yeah, dozen of both. Yeah, and I was surprised yeah. to learn that, um, like, boy, if Jared Clark's out there, he can correct both of us. But, like, <laughs> I, I would have thought that, like, almost all the mugals, so to speak, in his part of the world would have been common goals but that's not the case i guess they is, get, i don't know what the status i, is I, I in, believe in like short builds like are the you know eastern canada i believe has had its you know share of short build goals yeah it would well. not surprise and, me, and yeah. you know what you and i should do we should probably back up duck say what the heck we're talking about so <laughs> so, so, so there's this, right so, yeah. so there's this bird that if you have a field guide that's Actually, if you have any print, any guide, printed it's probably, field, it's probably guide. just called Mew Gull. Yep. And it's this uh, very small, beautiful, dainty, white headed gull with a very small bill. And um, it's most commonly associated for ABA birders with the Western mm-hmm. United States. So, like, and also with British Columbia and so forth. That's so, it's another, another bird you can find in Wyoming, right next to your uh, green tailed toey. Um, scarcely, but yes, <laughs> there, there are a few there. So, so, basically, if you see like a dainty version of a ring billed gull and like, uh, Anchorage or Seattle, mm-hmm. you're looking at what we used to Anchorage. just call the Mew Gull. Yeah. But it turns out that the Mew Gull is a complex of, um, well, we're not really sure how many species. But, yeah, but, and, but, it, you know, different or different taxonomic uh, bodies have considered them different ways. You know, that's yep. that's why the bird was split first place right. last yep. year. Yeah, the old world subspecies, Laris canis canis, the nominant subspecies, um, is is common goal, the common goal. Right. And, um you know, our northwestern North American one is is Laris canis brachyrhynchus, or at least it was until recently. The and short that was build. we called mugol, yep. uh, which is that, like uh, old world birders, European birders never called, never really called their birds mugols. They yeah. called them common goals, and yeah. mugol was always it, well established. As I, I'm, as I'm going over stuff that that we talked about recently with Nick Block, and I don't need to go over it again. <laughs> but um, mugol it comes from an old Norse term, I guess, uh, as I understand it. Um, a word for goal, uh, and it just is always uh, it's always associated with um, with a place where there are very few Norsemen, uh, Western <laughs> North America. Right. Yep. Yeah, and, and I should say that again for people who are just sort of trying to reckon reconcile <laughs> what we're saying to what they're experiencing. Oh, and, yeah. Basically, if you have seen this bird, I'll just call it this bird in the ABA area in the course of a normal birding trip to like California, Oregon, Washington State, British Columbia, Alaska you probably saw what's now called the short build gull. Mm-hmm. Um, but you said common gull. No, well, you didn't tell you anything. You said mew gull. But anyhow, mew so, but, but if, but, but if you gull, see this gull. bird in the east, especially the farther north, oh, yeah. farther northeast Could you be go, either. and the more likely it becomes common gull as you yes, go farther north. Yes, I'd say that's probably accurate. You know, it's funny. You know, they split them. Um, but even North American birders, even though technically speaking, they were one, one tick on your life list. 
or on the state list or whatever. Um, people have always made the distinction between the common goals and the and the and the mules. The senso senso what is it? Senso senso lato. Senso lato would be the whole the whole kit and caboodle. Oh, right. and, and then also we haven't talked about Kamchatka goal, but that also had needs to be yeah right. Yeah, so that, that's There's another a lot going population. Mugul very complicated. Yeah, yeah. So, anyhow, it's it's a tricky bird, but. Um, mm. If you are a Westerner, you know, a Western North American, and you're seeing this beautiful little dainty white-headed gull, um, again, around, especially around big cities, you know, places where, where gulls go, um, you can you can definitely call it the mew gull if you want to. Um, you can call it the short-billed gull, and you probably shouldn't call it the common gull because <laughs> as common as it is, it's not yeah. the common gull. What are you going to call it, Ted? Are you going to stick with mew or are you going to call it short-billed? I know and under in ABA... Uh, publications uh, or ABA media outlets, we should absolutely call it by the official name on the on the ABA. Yeah, checklist, I mean, which I'll go, I mean, build, I know was... I'm gonna have a hard time. I, as we said early on, coming full circle, I'm gonna have a hard time not calling it Mugle. Yeah, it's one of those words like uh, I was just birding them a week or so ago up in Maine with Derek Lovich. We talked about the difficulty both he and I have had with getting over Dendroica, which oh, is yeah. uh, this it's old, gone. old uh, genus name for some of the war, many of the warblers. And that was like 10 years ago. And <laughs> no. I guess I finally banished that from my, you know, birding lexicon. But yeah, Mugal is just one that, you know, it's just, it's stuck in my head for now. So we shall see. All right. Let's hit the, uh, let's hit the random number generator. Right. So we have here uh, 180, not very okay. much of a move here down just a bit i don't know how common this one is in colorado it's very common where i am uh, it's black vulture that's quite rare for us in, yeah in colorado i would call it i mean casual at best almost sort of accidental um it's a bit of a mystery to me why it's not more frequent in colorado the bird seems to be doing well it's expanding north um it likes you know cities and garbage dumps they're, and they're much and- more common in places in, in urban landscapes uh, and as you say, garbage dumps and landfills, <laughs> yep. uh, then turkey vulture is. Yeah. So you know, it's, 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 it's a, um, it's rarer than rare for us. I mean, it, mm. it's, it's, it's certainly not, uh, annual, um, often when black, I should say often, cause it happens so infrequently, but the handful of times that black vultures show up in Colorado, they often have the convenient habit of sort of sticking around for a while. So, it. um, yeah, a black vulture in Colorado, um, is something you can probably go see if you really want to see a black vulture in Colorado. I would also recommend just going to North Carolina or somewhere else. <laughs> in the, or especially, um, I'll just sort of make this a little more cosmopolitan here, um, well south of the ABA oh, yeah. area. Throughout, um, throughout the Americas. Yeah, and um, the birds are like hyper-urbanized mm-hmm. in some of the biggest cities. So uh, Lima, Peru, which is you know one of, the, well, it's one of the biggest cities on Earth and one of the very biggest cities in the Western Hemisphere. Um, but the picture of the sorts of places that have you know, rock pigeons, tourists, and not much else. And like, there will be black vultures there. They, um, they, 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 they perch atop like the, the tallest, um, buildings in, you know, downtown Lima and, yeah. um, the, the, the big cathedrals, uh, places like that. So they're exceedingly urbanized birds, um, especially South of the U S border. I have lived in North Carolina for almost 20 years now, and, um, they have gotten more common in my time here. Like I see them when I first moved here, they were probably, I don't know, 70, 30 turkey vultures to black vultures. And now it's easily almost the other way. Maybe it's because where I live, I don't know. Um, They love cell phone towers. So, you know, the proliferation of mobile phone towers has been very, very good for black Mm -hmm. vultures. They will roost in them in in incredible numbers. And uh, I frequently get texts from non-birding parents 
and they will drive by this the cell phone tower, which is not far from our house, and they'll be like, "Hey, have you? What are these? Have you seen them?" And there'll be just a picture of, you know, three dozen black vultures on every single yeah. crossbar on a cell phone tower. It's 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 impressive. Yeah. In, in addition way. to uh, that question, what what are these? You can also maybe. I know what they're saying. They just want the name of the bird, black vulture. But like the question, like, what is a black vulture? What is a black uh, vulture? Yeah, biologically, is is an interesting question too. So they're um, been moved around, haven't they, over the years? Yeah. Well, so the vultures have. But the first Mm -hmm. thing I just want to point is, you know, they're they're related to to turkey vultures, Mm -hmm. but um, they're not in the same genus. I mean, they're they're quite different in structure and behavior and and their ability. So they um they're not nearly as competent as uh, food finding as turkey Mm -hmm. vultures are. So they often sort of parasitize the efforts of um of turkey vultures. Also, as to what a a vulture is so despite the name vulture um they're not related to the famous vultures from africa no. at all um they're in, they're in their own order cathartiformes which is you know, they're related distantly to the other um you know hawk and eagle like birds of prey but the uh the vultures are a, the new world vultures i should be clear mm-hmm. are a distinctive group and they of course include um the california condor so the california condor the turkey vulture and the black vulture are the uh the three ABA area, at least these three extant ABA area species. The question of uh, which vultures occurred in the ABA area up until oh, yeah. relatively recently is a fascinating question. Was there Bartram's vulture? That's is it right. The the king vulture lookalike from Florida, yeah, so, maybe Pleistocene Florida. Yeah, well, you know, a little maybe even dirty, more recent. A dirty little secret here, but on a, uh, I've been working on a, actually now a couple of field guides, and mm-hmm. uh, I actually have an entry for um, for painted vulture. Uh, oh yeah, it, it, it's, it's in the appendix, of yeah. course, but um, <laughs> yeah, the the evidence that there was a another species of vulture in the southeast i think is uh, getting stronger and stronger That's wild. and um yeah i mean you know, we kind of laughed off poor bartram's vulture but <laughs> we've since discovered that there are independently attested descriptions that bartram could not possibly have known about that are like really eerily convergent right down to the exact pattern of like black on the tip of the tail and stuff yeah like that so, and for folks who may not be familiar with bartram's painted vulture it's uh, essentially like a king vulture lookalike right. yeah. or very similar yep but there were some differences <laughs> and then other people who described a similar bird from the southeast noticed the same things independently of bartram yeah. that bartram did which is really yeah. cool it's interesting you point out that black vultures are not as good as turkey vultures at um at finding food and and in a place where we have large numbers of both of them i I could say that that absolutely is the case but what they are better is uh at uh tearing open large carcasses they're way better at that than turkey vultures who tend to be sort of hesitant to go after like roadkill deer for instance that's actually on the large end of what a turkey vulture will comfortably go at but you know black vultures will come in mobs and they'll just kind of tear it open it's grotesque and fascinating but um yeah they they tend to go in in my experience they tend to go after the bigger stuff Whereas turkey vultures are more inclined to be kind of solitary, um, picking up things like raccoons and possums and what have you from the road. But the black vultures will will really clean up the larger animals. Yeah, it's strange to to say this because they're vultures, but I think of turkey vultures. As, you know, they're graceful. They're they're yeah. elegant. They're comparatively, know, they're, yeah, they're almost like sure. precious or dainty or something. And yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, black vultures are just like they're they're bruisers. Hulking, you, you, said, you mentioned yeah. um, you said I think you said like roadkill deer. I actually heard that as, as roadkill beer. Um, <laughs> which is, I, I know <laughs> they're one. I know, yeah. Well, that's sort of the thing. I yeah, I mean, it, right. I, I think that if, if if a black vulture were you know just sort of making the rounds in a garbage dump and there were a can of beer, would just go right for it. So yeah, it seems like they eat anything. <laughs> I, I know that with both of the vultures, uh, there's some really cool work on. Um, uh, basically how they detoxify 
um, you know, yeah. the really nasty stuff that they eat. So they're capable of eating some pretty gnarly stuff. It would send you or me to the hospital, even like our oh, dogs no and cats to the hospital, but like they can like eat anything. So you know to go along with this beer thing that's a bird that that's a bird that you could party with like that's a bird that would get down they'd be up for anything yeah, yeah they um i i much a carolina story this is a south carolina story once but i i was um what, what, what's the is the carolina bird club is that the two state yes group that, yeah, yeah. Yep. but i was the um the visitor or the guest you know a mm-hmm. couple of years back and um we were just we were going from point a to point b we had to get to some like really important birding hot spot but there were there's these marvelous black vultures at a rest stop and like i demanded that we stay with them i think we like we were late to our next you know rendezvous or something but i i was really taken with these uh these black vultures at the rest stop there and uh, oh yeah they're characters for sure they are yeah partying with the black vultures at a a roadside rest stop in south carolina that is a quintessential southeast experience ted all right we'll do uh we'll do at least one more uh 16 so back up to the top yeah the ducks or geese or yeah. Well, I, you know, I wonder if I should rearrange this given new taxonomy, because I think that they've moved kind of the ducks down a little bit and moved some stuff up. Neither here nor there. But um, anyway, it's a it's a very handsome whole Arctic duck, uh, northern shoveler. Uh, yeah, one of my faves and a bird that I really, um, you know, it's, I think the shoveler just because it's, you know, the drakes are distinctive and, and all plumages have that very distinctive bill. It's one that, um, I don't know, I, I'm probably speaking for myself and just projecting on myself here, but you, know, you can kind of sort of take for granted, you know, after you've sort of figured out the basic idea that the sure. shoveler is not an identification challenge, no. but I have really, really come to um, just admire and appreciate the shoveler, you know, the, especially like the past 10 years. Um, I'll just throw out three tidbits here. Um, so the first is the vocalization um, and they, they give this um, kind of endearing two syllable sh- sh- they just give this like they're mumbling to themselves so they give this really cool just note that you hear all Mm -hmm. the time um another cool thing that i confess i did not know until um i just started started paying attention closely um is their habit of uh rotating um in um either these big scrums of hundreds of birds or sometimes at the pairs pinwheeling so what they're basically doing is like uh, acting like a super fallow rope they're um they're 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 creating a vortex that brings up food um and i once saw a poor little long-tailed duck swept up into a a a vortex of uh shovelers (laughs) and poor thing i think almost got got drowned in there but yeah the uh, rotating shovelers is just a, a fascinating um matter um and that's the other good, thing i just want to say about name, actually yeah, the, the, shovelers. The, mm-hmm. the, the other thing i just want to say that bill is awesome I it mean, is you know, neat you know i was just <laughs> thinking as you were talking like why is the shoveler the only one that has right. that massive bill it seems like such a great advantage yeah it, you know and you know so it's um we know we now know it's a teal so it's actually mm-hmm. very close related to the blue winged and the cinnamon teal and you know the, the cinnamon teal does have a pretty big bill um, yeah but uh, like the bill the, the bill on the shoveler just um got out of hand it's, yeah. it's gargantuan it's incredible. seeing it if you can like see a shoveler fly straight overhead um so you have to get the angle just right i mean the bill is it looks like a so the, the um the, the new name for the bird is a, it's such a cool name. It's spatula clypeata. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So spatula means you know, like a, a spoon and then clypeata is, or some, some object we eat food with. And then clypeata means shield. And it is sort of shield shaped. Yeah. Um, so it just, it's an incredible bill. It has those um, baleen like uh, filter feeding mm-hmm. structures on the side. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a very common duck from what I gather. 
you know, it's recovered well from the you know, yeah. habitat and pollution losses in the 20th century. So it's great that it's doing so well, but um, it is just mesmerizing to watch shelters. In my case, mostly in the breeding, uh, sorry, in the wintering grounds. That's when we see the really big flocks of them. But um, it's a sense to identify. And I kind of like that because it's, oh, that's a shelter. And then you get down to the business of like, just realizing how cool it sounds and how cool it behaves and just yeah. um, that structure on the bird. Is, that yellow know, eye is yeah. really good too. The staring just, eye. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I guess, you know, the Northern Shoveler is whole Arctic. It's found uh, throughout North America, throughout Eurasia. It's a very common, you know, breeding bird in Northern Eurasia and a wintering bird throughout mm-hmm. the Southern part, right. um, the Mediterranean into Africa and, and India and all that stuff. There are other Shoveler species as well. In the old world, yeah, isn't there um, a cape shoveler? And um, yeah, yeah I, unfortunately, we are lacking in shovelers. Um, yeah, we, we, right, right. So, so in the in the U.S., we just have over the U.S. and Canada, we have only the northern shoveler, um, and, and it's by the way a kind of teal. Yeah, yeah and then there, there, yeah, there's a t- shoveler in Africa, and I'm drawing that's an Australasian shoveler. It's an Australasian okay. shoveler. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but anyway, I, I see they're and I mean, red I shoveler. Say, I did not yeah, know. Yeah. They're, the they're South American all, yeah. shoveler too. Yeah. They're all right. They're all in the genus. Um, again, the, that spatula genus. And they're, they're basically, um, they're just big teal. That's yeah. Sort of, yeah. But with some really of the shovelers, I, I think that the Northern shoveler though has the largest bill. I'm just looking at pictures of shovelers. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and a huge range. It's one of the most widely distributed birds on earth. Yeah. 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 I don't know if they're in Australia, so they might be on uh, five of the seven continents, which yeah, is wow. always impressive. Cool. As it is. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Ted. Uh, I think we got time for one more. You got okay, to up great. For one let's, more? let's do one more. And the way things are going, it'll be a duck, but let's see. Yeah, <laughs> why not? Why not? No, we're going to the end. It's 326. Oh, okay. Scroll, scroll, scroll. Oh, we were talking about Orioles. This one's a hooded Oriole. Oh, wow. So this is actually kind of a rare bird in, in both North states. Carolina and in y- yeah, Colorado. Yeah, that'd be yeah. sort of a fun question to compare the number of records in the two we, states. We have so, one. Okay, so you, so we have more, but we don't have many yeah. more. It, I mean, it's despite the fact that you know they're they're regular, you know, in the states that you know to the south of, of Colorado, mm-hmm. it's it's a quite. I mean, it's a it's like a black vulture rarity level rarity here. Maybe it might be a tiny bit more common than the um, than the uh, the black vulture. I shouldn't say common, you know, less less mega rare in Colorado. But um, yeah, no, so that that's a bird that is uh, basically a bird of our um, you know western borderlands. So uh, you know, Texas. Um, Arizona, um, uh, California. It's got a uh, really cool call note. Just that that wink note is one I. Hmm. I it's it just that's often what sort of attracts my attention first of all with the uh, the hooded oriole. But it's just it's one of the beautiful um, palm loving. Um, yeah, tropical always associated orioles. with palms. Yeah, yeah. but um, no, as to like, well, I've never seen one in Colorado. It's just to be no, clear, I've never, never, seen, I've never I did seen, not seen, see the one I've in never, North Carolina. I've never <laughs> never seen one in North Carolina yeah. either. So um, yeah, it's sort of funny you you. Um, so you're going to send us off here with a vagrant to, uh, to <laughs> both. both states, but yeah, That's yeah. So hooded Orioles when they show up in, in Colorado are um, often sort of ingratiatingly at feeders, and mm-hmm. they often will stick around for like a month at a time. So if uh, driving across the state to see a hooded Oriole, and it is by the way a glorious bird, is your mm-hmm. thing, uh, you can do that. The other thing I was going to mention about hooded Oriole is that I don't have a range, like an eBird range map in front of me, but I. It's quite prone to vagrancy. I want to say they're like, you know, Michigan's like getting everything this weekend. And, <laughs> I, and I, I think, like, record, I, yeah. I, again, you could look it up to make sure if, uh, but I think, I think like Michigan has like hooded Orioles and like the whole upper Midwest, like every state and yeah. Southern Ontario, I think it gets hooded Orioles. So for a bird that's, you know, essentially tropical and, you know, quite notable, you know, north of the border, um, it has a way of getting around. I, I remember, I remember when I was first birding though, 
uh, going down to Texas and um, being worried that I was not going to be able to tell Hooded Oriole from Altamira Oriole. And very quickly um, being disabused of that as Altamira Oriole is an absolute honking, like, right, yeah. massive. Al- yeah, Altamira is just a monster. And uh, Hooded is very small and sleek and slender. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's very small. It's also got, it has that kind of, um, yeah, the, the bill is decurved. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is that, like, um, turn back on Altamira isn't like, it's a really orangey bird. Like, yeah. the, you know, the, the yeah. shoulder, I'm using imprecise terminology here, but it's like, it's very um, like orangey a golden on orange. Yeah, whereas on hooded, hooded it's, it's, is it's, yellowy. It's, yeah. it, or even whitish, really. Yeah. yeah. So um, so there's that. The other thing, too, and we never get to hear this in Colorado because we almost never get them. The song of the, uh, well, of both of those Orioles is incredible. But the Altamira song, it's like a powerful thrasher or something yeah. <laughs> um, like that. So, but yeah, I think size alone, the Altamira Oriole is just this a bruiser. It's a haunting big Oriole and the hooded's a pretty, pretty slender bird actually. In an interesting, you note know, palms, um, you know, one of the, according to birds of the world, one of the old names of hooded Oriole was palm leaf Oriole. Is that right? Oh, one of sorry, those, of hooded. Hooded, yeah. Oh, that's cool. I didn't know that. No, yeah, voice just uh, one of those rare birds that has two yeah. very appropriate. So was names. Altamira the one that used to call Lichtenstein's Oriole? Yes, Lichtenstein's yeah, okay. Oriole. That's right. right. I have yeah, an yeah. old golden guy that has Lichtenstein's Oriole. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, I don't know who Lichtenstein was, but Altamira is a little bit better. Probably yeah. some <laughs> German zoologist who never saw the Mexico, bird in life. I know a lot of Germans at that time. Yeah, I shouldn't. I shouldn't just Lichtenstein without knowing anything about. I assume him, I him or her, but probably him. Yeah. And yeah, so yeah, just but now it's Altamira. Altamira, which is a cool name. Is that a place name? Is that right? Or I Altamira? Think, uh, I, it means like high view in Spanish. Well, no, no, no. But, but like how it got that name, I, I, I'm, I don't know actually. I have it, no but, idea. I'm going to yeah. look it up. Hold on just okay. a second. Altamira is a, um, yeah, there's a lot of places named Altamira. Yeah, that's, that's my understanding. There's an Altamira yellowthroat too. Yeah, right. Um, yep. It's a Spanish nobility. There's a Viscount of Altamira. I wonder yep. if that's where they, um, that would make sense. Something orange would be with herald, heraldic. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Good question. So we'll, uh, yeah, if, if this is our last random bird, then we'll end on the, uh, the, uh, the question mark of, uh, what Altamira is or what, what? it is. Or, yeah, right. it's, it's scientific right. name is Gularis. Oh, for the throat, I guess. Yeah, That's I guess. Cool. Yeah. Or the song or whatever. Um, anyway, all right, Ted, we, we've, we've cool. been at this for a while yep. and, uh, it's just as well, might as well close the book on this edition of random birds we'll we'll see you again as random as ever (laughs) yeah this was especially random um and uh we've still got like hundreds of birds 290 years so so for for those of you who uh, (laughs) still want to keep at this with me and nate for the next 15 years (laughs) i'm setting up content for the podcast for the uh for the future for the it'll never end even if the podcast ultimately comes down to a bunch i've interviewed every single person in the birding world we'll still Um, have random we'll still have random birds and and by that and by that time they will split the nut hatches and cross that's right well then yeah we won't be able to take them off because there's no way i've got all right well ted it was great to talk to you again thank you so much for joining me on some uh remembering some birds and uh we'll see you around great super thanks very much bye-bye the american birding podcast is brought to you by the american birding association if you enjoy this podcast you can support it by supporting the aba with your membership there are many benefits like our magazines discounts partners opportunities to travel with us you can get information at aba.org join i have one special shout out to make this week to Evan Nielsen of Arlington, Virginia, who joins not only because he wants to support the podcast, but also because he got coffee. Yes, that's right. New ABA members for the month of July 
will also receive a free bag of our ABA Songbird coffee. It's bird friendly, Smithsonian bird friendly, which is the real deal. If you want your bag of coffee along with your membership, there's no better time to join than July 2022. Executive director of the ABA and executive producer of the podcast is Nikki Belmonte, who refers to that pain in your shoulder from hauling a scope out to the good waterfowl viewing spot as a duck cramp. Technical production is by John Lowry, whose 64 species waterfowl tournaments determined the top duck in North America is called the Duck Champs. Additional help comes from David Hartley and Greg Nees, who have urged the ABA to expand their young birder programs to include a sleepaway option at Klamath or Tule Lakes where waterfowl congregate, obviously, we call this the duck camp. You can find us online at ABA.org, on social media, most everywhere is American Birding Association, but on Twitter, we are at ABA. This is a, a free one for ornithologists who might study the duck's uh, rather Byzantine reproductive organs. You can refer to the moment of union, wherein the external and internal curlicues and spirals fit together as the duck clamp. Questions, comments can come to podcast at ABA.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy, everybody. See you next week.